0: Hello, and welcome to episode 24 of Is It Shane Ritchie? The Adventures of a Wrestling Journeyman. My name is Carl Stewart, and I'd just like to say thank you for taking the time to listen today, whoever and wherever you are. Thank you to everyone who has recently taken the time to interact with us, and to everyone who has shared our posts on social media. Please, do keep interacting with us, as it not only lets us know that you're listening, but it really does help us to improve and grow. We are now available on a number of different podcasting platforms, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and many more. And you can find links to all of the various places you can now find us through our page at www.comroypod.com. .vze.com That's www.comroypod.vze.com You can also download the episodes from there and the page does contain something of a rogues gallery of various people who've either appeared on the show or who we've mentioned in various anecdotes and stories. Please do check that page out and let us know what you think via our social media pages which you can also find linked from there. If you enjoy this show, please do continue to like, share, retweet and mention us to others, and we will continue to add more 100% original content on each and every episode. Episode 24 sees the second part of my chat with Justin Richards as we continue to talk about our trip to Wrestling Canada in 2001 This time we talk about the shows, as we headed out on our travels, crisscrossing back and forth between Alberta and Saskatchewan, including several jaunts across the infamous Winter Ice Roads. We also talk about visiting a number of First Nation reservations, where we experienced a completely different way of life to anything we'd ever seen before as well as various ribs we had played on us, a few of our favourite memories of the tour, and a lot more besides. So, with that in mind, sit back, relax, and enjoy episode 24 of Is It Shane Ritchie? It's now time for the second and concluding part of my interview with Justin Richards. And we pick up the chat this time talking about the First Nation reservations and specifically the anti-drink and drug talks the Can-Am team would do at various points on the tour. Enjoy. I always found that fascinating, you know. The whole concept of doing those drink and drug talks.
1: I like the idea of wrestling doing good yeah doing good and i like the fact that if you can interact with a community and make a change to the children to Uh the children if you can give them something to think yes i can do something right i can do something right if you can motivate them that plays such an important role in my life at the moment with the children on the first nation they had so many hurdles yeah to climb absolutely I love being able to help people, especially kids, to give them something that maybe I never had growing up. Well, this is that thing we were talking about earlier, you know, before we even
0: started recording. When you come across like some sort of trauma, some sort of bad situation in life, you can either sort of take that on board and say, well, I had to put up with that, so you should have to put up with that as well. Or you can spin it around and say, well, I went through that and it was fucking shit so i don't want other people to have to go through that and you turn it around and you change that you deliberately try and change that for the next generation it's one of them things where i think that kind of defines you in a way as
1: as a human being you know which approach you take if you're doing it with sincerity if you're doing it with a proper ambition to make a change yeah it means so much i can't change you know young children's lives in wrestling by my wrestling performance. With the Justin Richards character, I was, uh, you know... I mean, I, I used to spit in kids' hands when they reached out to touch my hand. I wasn't giving them a good example at all. But at the same time, you're telling a story,
0: and you, as the heel, you're playing your part in telling that story and putting that moral narrative across. You, by setting that negative example and being the heel, you may have inspired them to think... I don't want to be
1: like that at all, (laughs) because that guy was horrible. So only example to show how not to be. That's quite good. As we've already said, this
0: was one of the things that made this tour such a unique experience for me, was going to these various places, going and visiting these reservations, the First Nation communities. And, yeah, it was just totally different. It was a real eye-opener for me. To see this completely different setup in effect?
1: First Nation communities have got, not across the board, but in part, they've got a problem with white
0: people. Yes, and understandably so. And we will go into the ins and outs of all of this.
1: The elderly generation have really got a problem, and they didn't like the fact that they were being lectured yeah. by a group of white people. I was there.
0: Yeah, they were angry at you for being one of their own that's turned on them.
1: Cuban who had...
0: Mixed heritage, let's yeah, say.
1: Yeah, but they really had a problem Yeah. being lectured. And with the talk being anti-drink drugs and anti-smoking as well. Yeah, that's right, and actually. Was you there when the guy pointed out and said, I saw you smoking, I saw you smoking? I remember that now. I'd forgotten that it was anti-smoking too. Right then, I thought to myself, well... That's it. If he's seen minimum of two of our guys smoking, uh-huh. we can't go back anywhere from there. Yeah. And I think, again, masters, Stephen Otterman, yeah, masters. Bullshitted their way out of it. They did. They came out with, you know, it's a journey. We Sometimes we fall. Sometimes we still... Brilliant, brilliant. But there's a big hostile reaction towards white people. And um, putting it
0: like that, and knowing the histories we're about to go into, yeah. you know, you can understand that. You know, that's very much an understandable point of view. If you look on the face of it at countries around the world who you know have got this racial tension, you look at South Africa, especially, you know, apartheid and the racial segregation that's been rampant for decades. On the face of it, Canada is not the first place that you think of unless you know these things. So that was a bit of a shock to the system to learn that the Canadian government basically pay, you know, the Native Americans to stay on the reservations because that's essentially
1: what it is yeah. and not come out into the towns and cities. Well it's not a prison. It's not a prison land. They're allowed to go anywhere they want. It's an enticement it's an yes. enticement for yeah. them to stay. If they do stay on that land, they'll be given a monthly stipend, you know, for you to use in whatever way you want. But there are two laws we'd like you to abide by. Yeah. No drinking, no drugs.
0: Uh
2: Uh-huh.
1: Anything else, go for. And they would smoke themselves to death. That's one thing, you know, if you give a man freedom to wander wherever they go, but then tell them, don't drink, that's not going to work. A man is going to go against that. If you tell him he cannot drink, he's going to drink. Yeah. And they drink to excess as a way to stick the middle finger up to say, okay, you make us down in this land, we'll fuck you. Uh-huh. And it wasn't just drink. A lot of the First Nation people did suffer from substance abuse. Yes. The main substance abuse that was going on in many of the reservations that we visited was glue sniffing. Yeah. Because it's not something that you need to go to a drug dealer yeah. to chew. It's widely available. It's widely available yeah. and legally available. Yeah. They would also brew their own alcohol. Uh Again, the ingredients for this stuff, easily available. Their biggest problem, apart from, you know, glue sniffing, alcohol fetal syndrome. Yes. If you're familiar with alcohol fetal syndrome, it disfigures. Yeah. And there were children there with eyes set a few centimetres lower than the other eye. Uh Uh-huh. And they weren't looking, the eyes weren't looking in the same direction. And they had a look about them that, you're not sure if they're there or not. Yeah. You can't stop that. The alcohol fetal not that's the condition now that they've got for the rest of their lives. All you can do is try and get into their heads, those children's heads. Don't do the
0: same thing. Don't
1: do the same thing. Yeah. It's not good. It's not good to see that. And you can give a positive message to help them not take that route. But it's difficult. How do you do that? How do you do that? These children are going to grow up in the same manner that their parents have, Uh in the same location. Their parents, okay, the parents are good people at heart, but boredom will drive you to do crazy things. And they're not drinking themselves silly, drugging themselves silly, just out of interest. They're doing it because they're bored stupid. Yeah. What else can they do? We're told to stay on this land. What else can they do? I mean, that's how wrestling shows really got paid for. These paid wrestling events.
0: Well, that's the thing, yeah. The entertainment committee on the reservation would purchase the shows and, you know, pay for the shows from this money that the Canadian government was subsidising them with. Yeah. And, you know, everyone or lots of the people from the reservation would go to the show. And them shows were, in my opinion, generally speaking, much better than the town shows. I would agree with you. Certainly the atmosphere, you know, was way better on a lot of these places.
1: I don't think I'm wrong in saying. Maybe not consciously, but I gave more of an effort on the reservation shows. The energy was so much higher. And there was a lot of energy behind that. Mm, there um, was. At the same time, though, you talked
0: a little bit about, you know, them having their own laws completely yes. separate to... I don't want to say the mainland or the mainstream public, because they are the indigenous people of Canada, you know, and it's condescending to say otherwise. But they have different laws to say the towns and cities, shall we say. They
1: had, um, like, hunting laws. They were given the right to enforce their own laws. Uh-huh. So if there's crime committed on a reservation, the First Nation Police would yeah. deal with it. They're given their own policing laws, which is sensible. And of
0: course, the guys knowing this, and knowing that we'd never run across anything like this before, weren't shy in using that knowledge to try and shit us up. I can think specifically of them telling probably both of us that if somebody dies on the reservation while you're visiting, you have to stay there for a period of mourning, which can be anything for seven days, ten days. And if you try and leave during that period of mourning without permission... They're legally allowed to shoot
1: you. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. it wasn't just the um, moose that were allowed to be shot. It's, uh... Yeah. <laughs> and this is another thing, you know,
0: with working on them reservations, as good an experience as that could be, at the same time, danger was danger, and it was real danger, you know, because these places that are so far removed from anywhere else, you know, there's nothing... Say, I mean, you know, I've talked on the podcast before about the riot that we had that night in Melksham. Yes. And whereas that night we were able to get things simmered down and we could get away. If the heat had been driven up to that point in that little community with no escape route except the one route, and if they don't want you to take it... You're not taking it. Exactly. You know, this is where danger really is danger. And this was a running theme of the time in Canada, was running across all of these different situations where there was genuine, genuine danger.
1: I think this is dancing around the subject of ice roads.
0: Yes, and we we will certainly get onto that. And I'll refer back to that as well, because one of the dangerous situations was going along the winter roads and just randomly seeing bears at the side of the road. Yeah. Yeah. And saying that about danger being danger and, you know, you potentially being in that situation where if they didn't want you to leave, then you weren't going to leave without this confrontation taking place. I did consciously think about that. As a villain, I enjoyed driving people up to the point of, you know, being so angry at me. But in that situation, that did play on my mind, actually. You had to show some caution. Yes. You know, you really did have to... At times, when you saw that things might sort of start escalating, you really had to start toning things down. And that taught me, actually, to do that. I mean, I I say that the next year I had a riot, but (laughs) that actually taught me somewhat of the art of being able to manipulate a crowd to a certain point and then pull things back. And that was such a good learning experience doing that on the reservations because anger was genuine anger and, you know, heat was genuine heat. It wasn't like they were just playing along for the sake of it. They believed. I can't remember how I found out about this. may have been Danny telling us. It may have been through someone else. You know that thing of certain First Nation communities naming their babies? After the first after thing they the, see. Yeah, after the first thing that they see. Who was it that
1: told us about that? Was it Danny? No, it was Steve. I think Danny might have actually confirmed it, though. Right. I think Steve told us, and we checked with Danny, and Danny confirmed it. Was it John Stanton Road, or something like that? Man yeah. Stanton Road. And, Rode, and right?
0: that's the thing, it wasn't the first name, it
1: was the surname. Yeah, that, yeah, you know, yeah.
0: That would be named after, you know, like, say if they've got the TV on, it's like, Jim will fix it. You could be like Paul
1: Jimmy Savile. The examples he used were like Man in Road, Lisa Reddeer, and stuff like that. Yeah. I was thinking, it's intriguing, okay. Yeah, Bob Kitchen. It's like, <laughs> I'm sure they gave,
0: it wasn't Bob Kitchen, but, no, you know, no. they gave an example that was like that. Yeah. Stephen Cupboard, or, you know, whatever it might have been.
1: That's I I an that odd one, you know, yeah, I do remember that. A strange thing. Do you remember, I can't remember when this was, this is how I first found out, some First Nation people have a problem with white people. I'm jogging my memory now. I was invited to do like First Nation chanting. Oh, okay. Yeah. And Steve tried to come in. He got sent away. Butch tried to come in. He got sent away. And that's when I started to think, what's going on here? Is it because they're villains? No, hang on a minute. How do you know that they're a... How do you know I am not a villain? Okay, I'm beginning to understand how this works. A uh-huh. community leader invited me to take part in First Nation chanting. And playing the musical instruments the pipes that was a great experience that's not done they don't invite just anybody to do that uh-huh. and they sent away a few of the other wrestlers because they weren't invited so i was so honored to be included to shake a first nation maraca and do some chanting i just felt privileged uh-huh. to be invited to be part of that and i knew that they didn't invite just anybody yeah I also remember taking part in the calling in of the Northern Lights. Now, I think you might have been there for that one. Yes. This elderly person in the First Nation asked us how long we've been in the West. How long have you been out West? And we said how long we've been on the road for. He said, have you seen the Northern Lights yet? I said, no. He said, come with me. He took us to the edge of the little cliff and he clapped his hands together and started blowing. And it started to make a whistling sound. I can't do it. And all of a sudden, up in the sky, there was the unmistakable green glimmer that just flushed across the sky. And, of course, I'm a reasonable person. Uh But I thought, do that again. And he said, OK. And he clapped his hands together. And he whistled again. And I looked up. And another green glimmer went across the sky. He said, it's called calling in the northern lights. I was amazed at it. But then it was confirmed. One of the ladies said to me, um, it's just time. it's just luck. It's just luck what he's doing. He's not calling anything in. It's just uh, luck. So if you stand there now and just look up, you're going to see it in another few seconds. It wasn't the biggest display of Northern Lights, but it was still pretty impressive to see that. I
0: certainly remember seeing the Northern
1: Lights. There was um, a couple of occasions, weren't there?
0: Yeah. And I remember specifically, after I got hurt, One of the nights, I sort of sat taking some photos of the show, but specifically of your match with Cuban. Ah, I've still got those photographs. And I remember you saying to me the next day, we were just talking, like, and you said, did you get a picture of the Northern Lights? And I was sitting there, I was breaking my brain, I was thinking, you didn't do one. And he went, no. No, not the moon, Not not
1: the Northern Lights (laughs) suplex.
0: (laughs) Did you get a picture of the actual real Northern Lights? And it was like a sudden light bulb went, Oh like...
1: <laughs> I think I tried maybe to take a picture and it didn't turn well, out but you gotta remember the cameras at the time were pretty lousy. Yeah. You know, you wouldn't have caught it with the crap that I had.
0: I took a camera as well and I yes, completely fucked up putting the film in, so none of mine turned out. And this is dating us as well, you know, going back to putting film in cameras. Yes. I mean, we talked about the negative side of the reservations and yeah. the communities. And we also talked like a little bit there about some of the positive side of, you know, how you would be welcomed in certain situations. You really would. That was one of my favourite things from being out there, was even though that day in Fort Chip, you know, was bad in a way, because I got injured. yeah. The time I spent with them people... You told me about that. ...was absolutely brilliant. How caring they were. They were lovely. They were really, really, genuinely lovely people. good people. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about some of the ribs while we were out there. One case in point was them ribbing you. This was before we left to go out on the road, when we were still staying at the point... By phoning our hotel room and pretending to be from immigration, saying that they had some issues and they needed to talk to you concerning you being in the country. And the instructions were to stay in our room until they got there. And this was coincidentally at the same time that Steve and Otto were about to come over
2: to take us us out somewhere. Yes.
0: You were suspicious of it in the first place, but you did buy into it a little bit. And there was a point when I remember you starting to get a little bit, you know, well, what if this isn't a rib? But Stephen Otto turned up at the point, like phoned the room saying, you know, where are you guys? You know, we're waiting downstairs for you. And I went down, like, because you'd been told to stay in the hotel room. I went down to see them. And I don't know if you know about this, actually. I went down to see them and I said, are you winding him up on this? Like, Is this you playing a wind-up? If so... Tell me, and I'll, <laughs> and I'll go along with it, yeah. sort of thing. But Otto got... You know when you're trying to put across something as being legit, but you go a little bit too far and you're over-angry? Which is what happened. Yeah. Otto ended up getting over-angry, saying, oh, What the fuck are you playing at? Just go up to the room and fucking get him. You know, sort <laughs> of And from that point on, you sort of knew. I've come back up to the room with you and we get another phone call you know from these immigration people supposedly telling us that their employees on the way stay in the hotel room until their employee officer K Faber um <laughs> <laughs> officer K Faber came you know to see you in the room and we just knew at that Straight point, away. you know it's
1: hang on a minute
0: K Faber ah uh... i think maybe they thought that you know they're from britain they won't know about K yeah, Faber but yeah. you know these terms you know that were probably thought of as being very American, you know. (laughs) But Steve later told me that if you'd bought into it, they were going to have a friend of theirs come along to one of the shows down the road and pretend to be the immigration officer. And that would have been great if they'd, you know, executed it properly in the first place. I wonder how
1: I would have responded to that. It would
0: have been interesting. Having said that, though, they did get me with a good one. And it turned out to be a good one. The first night we ended up working, but we'll get on to that. I remember the night before we left, you, me, Rick, Steve, Otto was probably there, going along to their lockup garage and us being, you know, the low men on the totem pole sort of thing, having to lug everything from that lockup garage into the ring van. Yeah. That sort of set the stage for when we did go out on the road. Because I remember from us lugging everything into the van that time, even putting it in properly, you know, with a proper order, proper reason to everything, it just didn't fit properly.
1: And this would become a recurring theme. Yep. It was like if you put one thing in at the wrong angle, it would throw everything out the window. It would not fit. You would not close that door. And inevitably, it would always be that
0: fucking DJ booth come cascading out of the van. I'm sure Winston fucking did that on purpose can a couple of times. you explain
1: what the DJ booth was to the listeners?
0: Yes, Justin, I can. <laughs> yeah. Along with the ring, there was this sound system, you know, PA system, and this booth-type setup that would sort of go around all of that stuff to make it look like a DJ would use, basically. This was the first instance of that DJ booth and that whole setup just sliding out of the back of the fucking van I'm sure I've still got brain damage from twenty years ago from that thing landing on my fucking head that many times when we were putting the ring away, or taking the ring out in the first place.
1: I wanted to destroy at the end of the tour, I wanted to destroy it. (laughs) I was so happy to see the back of it. Uh huh. It caused us so many problems. Yeah. Smashed fingers, bruised knees, bruised toes, having dropped on your feet. Uh Uh-huh. No. Absolutely. Hated that DJ Booth.
0: Yeah. And that did become a recurring theme every single night, pretty much. Yeah. But the following day, the first trip we went on when we first set off on the road was a lovely sort of seven-hour drive, which would set the stage, you know, for all of these long drives that we would go on to have. From Calgary to Regina, Saskatchewan. Appropriately named, according to Steve, because it's a fucking hole. I remember us sort of lugging everybody's bags into the ring van and from Regina, where we'd stayed over, and I'll get on to that, we had about a two and a half hour drive to what was supposed to be the first show on a little reservation on the outskirts of a place called Melfort, Saskatchewan, and this was where the first show was meant to take place. And when we got there, Stephen Otto got out of the van and the minibus, went in to see the chief... And he then told them that he'd decided to cancel the show without telling them in advance, with them having to travel there for no other reason than, well, you know, reasons, basically. <laughs> you know, and Steve and Otto were sort of understandably aggrieved at this. Somewhat. Yeah. I remember us sitting there for got to have been a good two hours at least. I remember. Waiting for them to finish arguing with the chief in the hall to see what would happen. And eventually they sort of come out with the news that the chief just wouldn't go back on his decision to cancel the show. I mean, this not only sort of meant that we were still waiting for our first show, but we were also out of pocket.
1: Down on money, yep.
0: I mean, after that, we had to then drive, you know, the two and a half hours back to Regina, where we stopped over in that hotel. Let's talk a little bit about the hotels here. Oh, yes, yes. And some of the other accommodation that we were put up in... While we were out there, they put us up in some absolute palaces, didn't they? You know, it's we-
1: incredible, wasn't it? Uh, really, we didn't know how we managed to land on our feet with that. They really did, and they were palatial.
0: Yeah, I mean, we we're talking you know, at least a couple of the places, you know, marble hallways. Yes. And, yeah, I specifically remember at least two of the places with marble hallways, <laughs> you know, great facilities, you know, the works. But not just that. As well as the places being lovely, we were given real star treatment at these places as well. Not just by the staff, who were very professional and and all that. Yes, they were. But we
1: used to get little clusters of fans start hanging around at the hotel. Do you remember? I remember speaking to a bunch of fans, asking where we're from. Uh And they seemed quite tickled that we came from the UK. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, also staying on the
0: reservations as well, where they would do certain things for us. Fort one especially, which we'll talk about later. They put us up in these beautiful wooden lodges, oh. log cabins. You know, it was absolutely beautiful.
1: Did you try moose soup and bannock bread? Did you try any of the bannock bread?
0: I tried bannock bread. Well, I wouldn't have tried moose soup or whatever, you know. Um, Strong. Was it actually moose? Well, yeah, I wouldn't have tried that then. But I did try the bannock bread. It's heavy. Yeah. It's heavy. And funnily enough, that originates from Scotland. Go away. Really? Yeah. it's a Scottish thing, but popularised in Canada.
1: I remember being told, you know, it will stick in your stomach if you don't add it with some sort of dip, some yeah. sort of... That's why they say, let it soak in the mousse soup and then eat it right. like that. Otherwise, it's too heavy uh-huh. and it will just stick in your stomach. Yeah. Yeah, I certainly tried the bannock bread. There were other things as well that day. That was the day,
0: and this is where my mind gets a bit hazy as to where we were. Because I remember, there's that little run of shows where things are a bit hazy, but I remember certain events and certain instances from that little time, but I couldn't tell you which place they actually took yeah, place that's quite in. quite annoying. Which is unusual for me, you know, because normally I've got all these details to hand. But I remember specifically, you remember we went into somebody's house, And they put on this massive buffet for us all. Yes, I do. And that is where we tried the bannock bread. But I specifically remember that day. I don't remember where we were, but I remember that specific incident because you lot had all gone in. I, I think, had had to go back to the van to get something. I can't quite remember what it was now, but it, it, (laughs) it was something like that anyway. But I got sort of separated from the rest of you and I was late coming in. Yeah. And we talked a bit earlier on about the snow being cleared away mostly in the towns and cities. And on the reservations, they would clear the roads, you know, or the tracks or whatever. But generally speaking, you know, people's gardens, you know, and wherever (laughs) else it was piled three or four feet high, you know, in some cases. And I remember thinking, "Well, shit, I'm a bit late. You know, I better try and make up a bit of time." Because you had to sort of walk round <laughs> to get round to the front door to go in. Yeah. So I tried cutting across the garden, not, really, not realizing because <laughs> it didn't look that deep. I took one step. I put one foot on this garden, <laughs> and I sank down up to my fucking crotch in snow. Oh. Uh. I then spent the next couple of minutes trying to pull myself out of this. Meanwhile, you're all inside, like, fucking enjoying a king's feast. I'm um, aware
1: that you're drowning. And I
0: eventually sort of pull myself out. I come trudging in the door, and I'm sitting there enjoying this beautiful buffet, and my trousers are pissing wet the whole time. <laughs> That's why I remember specifically uh, that incident.
1: I do remember going into that meal in the person's house. It was their house. Yeah, it was, it was their house, yeah. and it was... There was something
0: to do with... It was either the chief and his family. It might not have been. They were quite high up in the community, at least, if it wasn't the chief. And it was maybe somebody that was on some sort of committee or some head of something, you know.
1: Yeah. Now, I remember it was someone important. It was
0: someone of some importance. Yeah, it may not have been the chief. Because I remember them being quite standoffish, if you like. There was one place we went, and it was very much like you were talking earlier you know, there would be lots of kids there with lots of different problems. Yeah. But my one sort of takeaway from that place, wherever it was, is I specifically remember the chief looking exactly like Genichiro (laughs) Tenru. And I think pretty much the whole night, I was fascinated. I was watching this guy, you know. It's like, you look exactly like (laughs) Tenru. Steve, you're missing a trick here, you know. (laughs) Going back to the hotel in Regina that night, we spent that evening, you know, at a loose end now, dossing in various people's rooms, like we were talking about earlier. Mostly Butch and James. And then we went in with Rick and Robert for a bit. And I specifically remember that because we sat there and chatted for a bit. And we then said, we're a bit hungry, let's go and get some food. (laughs) And you know where this is going. (laughs) Oh, yes. Uh, this is one of my favourite memories from the entire tour Um, so we went out for some food and Robert comes out with us we went along to the local subway and I'm glad it was as close to the hotel as it was because this was a particularly icy night and the two of us I remember sort of very nearly coming a Cropper quite a few times Mm. on the way up there
1: and complaining about it yes
0: and that's why what happened happened Yeah. We went to the subway. Now, the subways in Canada were a little bit different to the ones over here. Yeah, I don't know if it's still that way over there, but whereas over here, you would ask for certain things to be added, and the staff would add them. Over there, they had this big sort of counter of different foods, and you could add them yourself to this. You ordered whatever kind of bread you wanted. They gave you that, and you would add the toppings yourself from this big sort of deli counter of various foods, and I just remember Robert making an absolute mockery of this. I never mind, you know, like a foot long sandwich. This thing was practically a foot high as well. You know, it had fucking all sorts on it. You know, like Uh. peppers and lettuce and chilies and like mushrooms and whatever else, you know, piled high with all of this stuff. And on the way back after we got our food, Robert had seen us nearly slip on the ice and heard us complain about nearly slipping on the ice quite a few times on the way up there so in his wisdom he said he would give us a demonstration on how to walk properly on the ice without falling as someone who was far more used to these conditions on a regular basis than we were I remember us being grateful for that so you know we watched him set off in front of us using whatever technique he was supposed to be demonstrating to us before you know the inevitable happens and he went absolutely arse over tip, sending both him and the contents of this enormous sandwich flying up in the air, and <laughs> the visual of this enormous guy sitting there on the pavement while bits of this sandwich, which have which have caught the wind, and are now fluttering down like onion snow on top of this huge guy while he just sits there prone on the pavement, is like an image I don't think I'll ever forget. <laughs> But then you and me, yeah, we're behind him. You and me going over to him, and sort of we're standing at the back of him, and we each grab him under these enormous arms, you know, one either side, and we sort of shot each other a look. Yes, yes. And I remember this clear as day. It was like a little sort of telepathic moment between the two of us. It was just that look that just said... Don't laugh. Don't <laughs> laugh. <laughs> do not laugh. Whatever you do, do not laugh yeah. or we're dead, <laughs> basically. But us doing that and us sort of silently saying, don't <laughs> laugh, do not laugh, then made us start laughing yes. silently. We, yeah. You know, And we're sort of going. And thankfully, as we pulled Robert up to his feet, he started yeah, laughing, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so you know that sort of saved our lives.
1: I mean, I'm glad he never hurt himself, but it was it was funny as you know, fuck. Funny, and,
0: funny sights. And, and well, I say we were spared. You were spared. I still had to get stoved in every night, but yeah, that's um... right, yeah. I, knew I wasn't <laughs> any problem.
1: I never <laughs> had any danger of being hurt by him. Yeah. Yeah. Did you get
0: choke slammed by him? Oh yeah.
1: Oh, you did every of course night. You did, yeah. Yeah.
0: That was the finish every night. There we go. Yeah. And the first night, I sort of fucked that up a little bit. Oh! I didn't know how to take it, so I didn't get up very high for him on it. Well, who in the UK would have? Well, this is the thing you you know, at that point. And this is what I said about being out of my comfort zone and not knowing how to yeah. do that match. But I went to see him later on because I knew, you know, I went to see him. and I said sorry about earlier on, and like he was fine. And he said, "Don't worry, you know, you were nervous. You know, I could tell you were nervous." And, you know, he had the good grace to say it was nerves rather than you'd fucked up sort of thing. that's good. Which was nice, you know. Shows his good side, his character. But, you know, he then sort of taught me how to do it properly. Pushing off the shoulder and slinging the arm over the shoulder and pushing off. And after that, you know, it was fine. Um, And we sort of settled into a nice little pattern. The following day, we made a much shorter journey of probably about 30 miles or so, which ended up being to Craven, Saskatchewan. Craven which should have been the second show, but because of what happened the previous day, ended up being our first show out there. And this was by far and away one of the least remote First Nation communities that we visited (laughs) during the tour. As we've said already, some of the others, there was literally a 100 miles or more in between them and anywhere else. I remember unpacking the ring, unpacking the fucking DJ booth, and everything else out of the van, and getting set up and everything. Definitely not the last time that that would fall on my head. (laughs) As I said earlier on, we were in separate baby face and heel dressing rooms that night, which was either one of the first times I'd ever experienced that, or possibly the first time. I'd encountered that over here. I'd been in different dressing rooms to people before, but it was always that set up where, say like backstage at Leescliffe Hall or backstage at the Winter Gardens in Margate, there were lots of rooms, but you could easily sort of... Go into... Yeah, they were all interconnected at the back, and you yeah. might come out of separate entrances as far as the punters were concerned. These were two big, one-size changing rooms. They were, yeah. They were just sort of rooms on their own. Yeah. And I remember specifically Otto and Winston acting as runners between the two That's rooms. right, yeah. You know, relaying the messages yeah. and everything. Robert and me talked through, you know, what we were going to do and how it would work. Basically, me stalling in the first instance, then him overpowering me, me cheating to get my heat, and then him making a big comeback and pinning me with a chokeslam, which was, you know, very straightforward. I wish I said this to you the other week. I wish I could remember what music you used while we were out there because I remember specifically going off to the record to for shop. Something. Yeah, yeah, the record shop that. in Sunridge to look for something but I can't remember what we it was. We found something, but I can't remember
1: what it is. Yeah.
0: I used Word Up by Gun. Yeah. Main reason being, I think I had two CDs out there with me, because I had like, a portable CD player. Again, you're aging us. I know. <laughs> hey, I, at least I didn't have a Walkman. By that word, <laughs> but. Yeah, I think I only took a couple of CDs out there with me. One of which was, I think it was now 1994. And the only suitable track, oh, wow. the only track that even would have been anywhere even close to being suitable, was Word Up by Gunn. But I had visions of them sort of playing the wrong track, because the next track was something like East 17. The track before that was, I don't know, Wigfield. You know, I had visions of coming out to one of these songs instead. Whatever music we chose for me,
1: I used throughout uh-huh. as well. Well, you bought something specifically. I remember you... Yeah, I never got to take that back with (laughs) me. No, I I lost my CDs as
0: well. They ended up in the ring van somewhere, along with my CD player. (laughs) Yeah, there's certain music that always reminds me of the tour. Yeah. Some of it because it was in the charts at the time. Some of it because of it being on Stephen Otto's warm-up CD that we had to listen to every single day. Yep. I mean, classic case in point, New Radicals, you only get what you give, or whatever it was called. And I remember when we were still in Calgary, sticking the TV on, and there was a song that was playing, a Lenny Kravitz song called Black Velveteen. Yes. And I remember you and me seeing this song and both thinking, when this hits the UK, this is going to be like the biggest hit of the year, sort of thing. Yeah. And later on, you know, when we got back, I researched it a little bit. And it had already been out, and it had barely charted. Which is a note, because
1: we thought, this is incredible.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we honestly thought this was going to be the biggest yeah. song of 2001 in the UK, sort of thing. But, I mean, other songs that sort of remind me of that time, because they were in the charts at the time, It Wasn't Me by Shaggy. <laughs> that always sort of takes me right back there. Similarly, Love Don't Cost a Thing, Jennifer yeah. Lopez. Yeah. That was you know, a big hit in the charts at the time. And just various others like uh, Mr. Roboto. Listening to that always reminds me of being in Steve's basement oh. that time. you know. But that particular show that ended up being the first show that we did, I'm pretty sure Cuban and Biff were on first. That was the okay. opening match. And then Biff coming back and having his little temper tantrum to the dressing room straight afterwards. Then you and Rick were on next. And I remember being in the dressing room and listening at the door. You know, there was no way of being able to watch or anything.
1: No, no, um, there
0: Because you went out that door, you were straight into the hall. Yeah. But I remember listening at the door to the match, and I, I remember going, wow, you know, this crowd's really up for it. You're getting over. You're doing this really great yeah. job out there sort of thing. And I remember thinking, oh, yeah, I better go out and keep really? my end of the bargain yep. up sort of thing. And that sort of spurred me on, you know. Uh, not that I needed spurring on, thinking I needed to put in a performance as well. As well, yeah. And next... I was out for my match with Robert, waving the union flag about the place on that fucking pole that, you know, would instantly become... Wonky. Yeah. Wonky pole. <laughs> and going out, doing my promo that we'd agreed with Stephen Otto, I'm a very important visitor in your country. Don't announce me at these foreign weights. I'm 20 stone. I'm not 280 pounds. Although on that first night, they hadn't charged the microphone up before we'd left, so it kept cutting out on me. But even so, they were going for it. You know, it was um...
1: demoralising.
0: Yeah, <laughs> but even so, they got the gist of it yeah. and they were going for it. I remember that first crowd, especially being really, really hot. They were really they up were for a that show. Crowd, yeah, big pop from pinning me with a choke slam. Went to see him afterwards, and as I say, he said, "Don't worry about it. I could see you were nervous out there, sort of thing." And then taught me how to take the choke slam properly because I hadn't managed to get up that high on it yes. for him. You know, and then we were off to the races sort of thing. When I got back to the dressing room after the match, that's when Steve collared me, and that's when they pulled this rib on me. We'd been doing this thing where, you know, I'd powdered out the ring, wasting time, and he's come out after me, and, you know, we're doing the thing where we're running around... Yeah. You know, running around the ring. I'm going to get in the ring ahead of him as he comes through the ropes, cheap-shot him, and that's my heat. Yeah. Steve had told me that while we'd been running around the ring... We'd got too close to this little girl sitting at ringside. We hadn't touched her, but she'd had to suddenly move to get out of the way of us, you know, potentially running into her. And as she did so, she'd fallen and broken her ankle. Then Steve, really laying it on thick, tells me that, you know, in no uncertain terms, that the people from the reservation were very, very (laughs) upset that this had happened and that... I should stay back in the dressing room after the show until they'd managed to sort everything out with the chief and the family of the girl that had been hurt. (laughs) Of course, then, you know, within easy earshot of me, the other guys then start laying it on thick, saying about the different laws on the reservations and things. You know, saying, <laughs> "Oh, you know, it's martial law out here. You know, it's sort of, when outsiders come onto their territory and either hurt them or disrespect them in some way. It's an eye for an eye." <laughs> 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 you know, and all of this. And they were really laying it on thick. Rick and I think Biff got involved in that as well. Yeah, it sounds like so Biff would have got involved. Um... In. Saying that it was martial law and like these people wanted revenge, sort of thing. You know, they wouldn't let this sort of thing fly. I smelt a rib, like you do. Yeah. I smelt a rib because they were laying it on so thick, but at the same time they were really convincing. You know, we've already said about Steve and his incredible speech yeah. that he would do, and it's—he was, wasn't just a good worker in the ring. He was a good worker. He could work you to the point where you would believe it. And because of having just heard about all of these different laws and things, I didn't want to take a chance on it being a rip. you know. I thought I'd better not take a chance on it being a rip. so... I ended up staying back in the dressing room as planned, and they all then took turns to go off and do, you know, whatever they were doing. Periodically coming back, each one by one, to ship me up some more, you know, giving me oh, updates on what's angry. going on. <laughs> Eventually... I took the chance on it being a rib, and when it's just me and Rick in the dressing room on our own, I went over to him and I said, "You got me pretty good with that one." And he then admitted it. You know, uh, we, we, we you know we had a good laugh about it, sort of thing. But I will admit to having been quite worried at one point. I wonder what the intended end of the rib would have been. I don't know, you know. I wonder if it would have just ended like that, you know, with them eventually saying, like, oh, I hope not. I hope
1: not." I was hoping for something big. A big ending.
0: Yeah, you wonder like where it's going to go from yeah. there. But yeah, eventually Rick just admitted it, you know, come clean and um, we had a good laugh. <laughs> but I mean, in staying back in the dressing room, as told, it meant I just about missed having to take down the ring and put it away. So I probably wasn't all that popular with no, you guys well, that night. Because <laughs> you probably I, didn't even know about this, did you? No, no. So you probably wondered where the fuck I was.
1: By that stage, I hadn't become sick of taking down the ring or taking down that DJ booth. Taking the ring down wasn't that bad, actually. Uh The DJ booth, honestly, when I see that certain shade of blue, (laughs) it it, it snaps all the memories back into my head. But, yeah, I wasn't tired of doing it by then. Uh It was so early on the tour. Winston was there and Danny was there. Yeah. By the end of the tour, Danny had gone... Winston had gone, you'd gone, uh-huh. and it was me, James helped out, and I think Rick as well. Yeah, I remember Rick pitching in at certain yes. points anyway. Cuban actually pulled me aside at the end of the tour and said, when you come back, no help with the ring. I maybe mm-hmm. you're telling me that. yeah. yeah. He, um, he had a problem with me helping with the ring. He thought that Steve should have hired some people to do the ring. Having said that, though, I mean...
0: At the same time, if even a couple more people had pitched in, it would have made it a much quicker job, wouldn't it? But, I mean, it was pretty much always the four of us doing it. And Winston was a fucking clumsy buffoon yes, when it came to putting that yes, fucking ring away anyway. Yes, he was. And he was
1: responsible for that fucking thing getting dropped on my head at least You're, twice. He's, oh. I remember, I do remember as well, putting a DJ booth in the ring away whilst Stephen Otto and Butch was off gallivanting away, you know, uh-huh. chatting the birds up. And me looking over there like, <laughs> 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 oh, I, I want to go over there and be the centre of attention as well.
0: <laughs> Back at the hotel that night, that was one of the first places where we started teaching a few of the guys, you know, the British slang and yeah. the um, Cockney rhyming slang especially, you know, which, I mean, you know, I've never ever used in conversation once. You know, it's like...
1: Neither me, neither. No. I, I am a Londoner. Yeah. I'm a, <laughs> I'm a Londoner and I oh, don't
0: use it. But over there, they seem absolutely obsessed with this sort of faux British culture that only exists in. Mary Poppins. Yeah. <laughs> Rick, especially, as we already said, you know, yeah. was the biggest culprit for taking that on board and using that.
1: Didn't mind helping him out with a few. Yeah.
0: <laughs> and of course, there was that alleged British pub in. It was either Saskatoon or Regina. Yeah. And it was either attached to or just along from one of the hotels we stayed at. remember we walk in and the first thing we see as we walk through the door is this huge portrait of the Queen up on the wall. (laughs) And I don't know about you, but I can't think of too many pubs over here I've been in that have an enormous picture of the Queen up. But Yeah, I do remember that. Next day at breakfast, we were greeted with the usual, OK, Governor! And we set off for the second show, which was at the Prairie Land Exhibition Hall in Saskatoon, which was famously the town where Bret Hart had won his first WWF title from Ric Flair in 1992. Whereas the show the previous day had been great in terms of the crowd being really into it, the show in Saskatoon was the exact opposite of that. Yeah. They... Just wouldn't go for anything all night. A lot of them were apparently what you might call smart fans. Who were never fun to work in front of no. over there or anywhere else. The hall we were wrestling in that night was a strange kind of setup. It was this huge sort of cavernous arena. A bit like an aircraft hangar, like a huge aircraft hangar sort of
1: setup. You know what it used to be? It was an ice skating rink. Was it? Yeah. Yeah, okay, but there was like there was one little section of the hall being used for
0: the show and whatever else, and (laughs) the rest
1: of it.
0: Yeah, the rest of it. It was like (laughs) you you had this wide open space in behind the punters that it it just. I mean, the atmosphere was rotten in itself anyway. Very awkward. I'm sure that didn't help. No, and another thing about being in that huge arena was I remember us being absolutely crammed into these tiny little dressing rooms backstage. And we were all in the same sort of yes. one or two rooms on this show. And it was quite a squeeze, you know, to get us all in there. And I just remember thinking how ridiculous it was that in this enormous great arena... We're getting changed. Yeah, we're squashed into these tiny little rooms at the back there. I'm this.
1: sure that it didn't need to be that way. Was this the night where Rick had his incident with the... Chainsaw? Yes, it was. Yeah, uh, look and at that.
0: Yeah. Um, <laughs> And it was also, I mean, after we'd set the ring up and had the fucking DJ booth, do its usual routine, basically on my fucking head again, I got Robert sort of stoving the fuck out of my chest. I got the DJ booth.
1: On a nightly basis.
0: Yeah. yeah, I was having a great time. Yeah, and this was where Danny, who'd come on tour to be trained yeah, and help out, got his one and only training session of the entire tour. Unless he got maybe a little bit later on nope. after I left. no. Nope. Nope. Right. No. Nope. Yeah, that's what I thought, you know, and I remember him getting very demoralised later on about all this. And I actually sat up with him till stupid o'clock in the morning the one night. In fact, it was the same night I got hurt in Fort Chip. What, what were you about? helping him with? He was just really, really demoralised and it was me sort of trying to pick him up. He was demoralised at that, you know, having received basically no training. He was always broke. You know, he's down about being broke. I because that as well. Because he'd been promised some money from his community that they basically just not delivered on at all. I remember him telling me that on that particular night. And that's why he was always broke. Because obviously he wasn't being paid to do ring crew or anything like that. You know, He was basically just sort of there surviving on his own kind of thing. And he was also very demoralised about the way certain people had been treating him on tour. I remember him specifically going into detail about people that had been rotten to him sort of thing. At the time, I thought, well, yeah, that does sound a bit shitty, but at the same time, this is like your initiation into the wrestling business. Yeah, it probably fell sort of halfway between the both of them in the end, but I think some people were sort of genuinely a bit rotten to him, and I think the rest of it, it was just, you've got to learn to live with this environment. I did see his enthusiasm
1: sort of really start to dip down as we went further along. We never got to venues... Early enough to do any training. Not really. And at enough. the end of the night, you know.
0: Yeah, at the end of the night, you got no chance, no. sort of thing. But yeah. you're right, he did receive one day of training. Going back to that show in Saskatoon, the first action for me that night, I can't remember if you were involved in this or not, or if you were just involved in the match later on. First action for me that night was as part of an angle to build up to one of the main events for that night which was Rick versus Otto in a tables match, which I think had maybe been set up the previous time they were there, or they'd done something the previous time they were there to potentially set that up. This, along with Robert falling on the ice, is also one of my absolute favourite memories of the tour. Otto was in the ring doing a promo, with Steve then due to go out and make a challenge to him. And then at a certain point in that exchange they would be joined by the rest of the heels. Me, Rick, Butch and Biff. And me, Steve, Butch and Biff would then serve as the heel lumberjacks for their match later on, the tables match later on, between Rick and Otto. We we're all standing in the cramped backstage area behind the curtain, just waiting for this certain point in the promo. And at that point, Rick was supposed to start revving the chainsaw up. And that would then lead to him going out, followed by the rest of us. You know, that's what's supposed to have happened. When Steven Otto get to the point in their promo where Rick was supposed to start revving up the chainsaw, he went to do it, grabbed the cord, yanked it, and it just came off.
2: <laughs> it just
0: came off clean in his hand. Can you imagine this visual: he's just pulled this cord clean off. He's just standing there, looking at it like this, his eyes going from one to the other, to the chainsaw to the cord, to the chainsaw to the cord. And as this happened, me and Butch, I remember specifically, (laughs) started absolutely pissing ourselves (laughs) laughing. (laughs) He absolutely burst, and then that set me off. If it hadn't been for the fact that we were about to have to go out to do this angle, I think we would actually have been on the floor from laughing that much. And of course, you know it's a chain reaction. This, this then sets Rick off. And even though (laughs) you know he had the mask on and everything, you could see the belly going under the apron and
1: everything. Yes.
0: Yeah, and he starts laughing. And we still (laughs) had to try and sort of find some sort of solution to the chainsaw being broken. So, as an absolutely brilliant stopgap, you know, plucking an idea out of nowhere. Rick managed to reattach the cord with a piece of chewing gum he'd found in his pocket. And amazingly, it actually worked. And it kept the cord attached for not only the duration of the angle, but the rest of the night. <laughs> <laughs> Until, you know, we could sort of get through that show and go and get it fixed properly somehow, sort of thing while Steve and Otto in the ring just sort of fudged their way through, where is everyone? Like, why the fuck haven't they come out? And they bring it back and they eventually come back to this point again where, <laughs> you know, Rick's supposed to rev the chainsaw and start coming out. And the cord stays on this time. He grabs it, he pulls it, and now the fucking thing just won't start. Yeah. <laughs> and this sets me and Butch off again and Rick off again. And I swear to God... Because you know we've already fudged this the once, and they can't come round again to this no. point. Butch just goes, roo, roo, roo! <laughs> <laughs> and somehow, like we crack up laughing again. But somehow, just as we're going through the curtain, we pull ourselves together. Like from <laughs> him having made this fucking noise, like it's meant to be a chainsaw, like. <laughs> and. Yeah, and um, um, you know we all come down with Rick sort of hoping people won't notice that the chainsaw's not yeah. fucking moving and even... <laughs> Did you ever hold that chainsaw? Uh, yeah. It was a meaty thing, wasn't it? It was, yeah. I remember lugging that and his bag from the ring van
1: many, many times during that tour. It was a meaty chainsaw. It was a legitimate chainsaw. Uh-huh. It wasn't gimmicked in any way. No. It was gimmicked in
0: as much as it shot the sparks, but... You know, um, <laughs> yeah,
1: that's about all.
0: Yeah, but honestly, that was so funny. And um, it was a good job that me and Butch didn't actually have to do anything except just be there, you know, it, you know, forcing numbers sort of thing. I don't think we would have managed. Um, and after that fucking debacle, well, you were out next for your match with Steve... I seem to remember that going fairly well on that night, was, even though it was you know, a
1: fucking rotten crowd. The crowd never took to me as the blue eye in that match, the baby face. Uh-huh. Just did not. And Steve grabbing onto the St George's Cross and blowing his nose on it, wiping his arse with it, actually got a face pop. Yeah. And I hated that crowd. The match with Steve, you know, you're working with someone with so much experience, he's it was a pleasure it was easy Uh easy night he guided me through that match i remember they booed the flags yep for you and me both yep because
0: i was out next for my match with robert which in ring was much better than the previous night but the crowd wasn't there so we'd had a hot crowd the night before but the match was a bit iffy this time the match goes much better But the crowd is a bit iffy. So, you know, you start thinking, well, are we ever going to get there? (laughs) Uh, I mean, luckily the next night, I think we probably had the best match that we had together. But we'll get on to that. Yeah, they booed the flags for both you and me. I think they must have been talking to fucking Butch. Because, you know, none of them believed that we were actually real, genuine Brits.
1: That's right. You know, they they probably
0: thought we were from Alabama or somewhere. Every fucker's from Alabama.
1: Why would two guys from the UK be in Canada? Why? Why? <laughs> what reason would they be?
0: <laughs> yeah, I think they thought we were trying to milk the popularity of the William Regal gimmick, which was just starting to take off at the time. One. Yeah, as per usual, five more of them lovely chops. Whereas the previous night they'd all been thudders, you know, they just sort of thudded into me. These ones all split me. Ah. Yeah, so that added the red to the ongoing. Purpley green. Yeah yellow, green, brown sort of <laughs> ensemble that I was sporting now. Yeah, and, you know, as I say, got up much better for the choke slam, and it was all good sort of thing. But we still had the Lumberjack tables match with Rick and Otto before we could get packed up and go away. I'm assuming that there must have been baby-faced Lumberjacks as well. I'm assuming you guys must have been out there as well. You know what?
1: I've got a sketchy memory about the Lumberjack match.
0: Yes, I do remember you guys standing on the opposite side of the ring now. We didn't really do many spots or anything like that, you know, as lumberjacks. We were just there kind of thing. I think we maybe had a little brawl at the end between the sets of lumberjacks. But me and Butch had this one spot that we had to do, which was basically... Oh, I must have been Winston refing because, I mean, Otto was in the match. Yeah. So Winston gets bumped and Otto then puts Rick through a table, but the ref doesn't see it. You know, that would normally end the match. So our job was to quickly get in, get the broken table out of the ring, slide that out of place, slide the new one back in, ready for Rick to put Otto through, to end the match that way. Me and Butch basically spent most of the match that we were out there just nattering. Like, just nattering about this and that, and it just nothing, basically. And I also remember Butch, you know, we talked about him being salty. He was ripping a new arsehole out of the actual match. He's <laughs> <laughs> just standing there at room time, <laughs> <up>, very audibly. <laughs> like, oh, this is fucking shit, you know, and all of this. <laughs> whatever he would have said, you know. As we did the spot that we had to do and the match finished and they did whatever they did, yeah. maybe to G up for next time or whatever, we start heading back to the dressing room and Butch just goes very audibly, thank fuck for that. <laughs> 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 Which set me off again like this. <laughs> I don't know if this was the show. This is a random thing that I remember that I hadn't written in my initial notes years ago. Do you remember... There was a film out maybe the year previously to us going there called The Bone Collector. Yes. I remember Steve cutting a promo somewhere which was aimed at a local rat saying these various things about her and calling her the Bone Collector (laughs) and referring to her as the Bone Collector. And I don't know if that was in Saskatoon or if that was maybe the next night or somewhere else, but it was definitely Um, one of them shows.
1: I can't remember it being in Saskatoon. It was somewhere on that first few shows. Sorry, that was a throwaway night, that was. was... Yeah,
0: but um, I remember we had a couple of Steve's friends who'd come along to the show from Saskatoon who were helping us with the ring that night which made it a much quicker job. And I don't know if you remember this. We'd been struggling for food. You know, we hadn't had a chance to eat. Tokens. We were given these McDonald's meal vouchers. Yes, I remember. I do remember. And I remember us being, oh, right, okay, you know, let's go off and use these. And we looked down at them, and whoever it was that had given them to us, whether it was Steve or Otto, they were expiring at the close of business on that day. And as we sort of looked at our watches... We never got to use them. No. Close of business that night was about five minutes away.
1: And so, where was the McDonald's? Well that, well, that was
0: the thing, you know, we didn't even know Saskatoon. No. We were never going to get to a McDonald's no. like in five minutes. No. So I can only assume that was somebody's idea of a joke. Yeah,
1: it's a nice little bonus, isn't it? <laughs> hmm. But,
0: I mean, the other thing about the town shows compared to the reservations, whereas on the reservations they might do things for us themselves, like put on that buffet... The town shows tended to have sponsors, I remember. And, I mean, on this particular night, the sponsors paid for us all to go to some pizza restaurant. And it was a good thing that they did because we hadn't been paid yet. Because Steve and Otto had gone on ahead. So I was glad that this meal was sort of for gratis on the sponsors. Because otherwise we would have had to go to them in the restaurant and ask for our wages. You know, which really sort of probably wouldn't have put us in a good light. You no. know, not really the done thing. I mean, we were glad of the pizza that night because that night we weren't staying over in Saskatoon, or anywhere, because that was the night we did the... The long drive. The long drive. Yeah, (laughs) yes. Yeah, we were about to make the journey that meant I would never, ever complain about a road trip in the (laughs) UK again. (laughs) We were driving pretty much straight from the show after the pizza, pretty much straight to set up for the next show, I remember us stopping off at the hotel very briefly, where we had about an hour, just over an hour, before we had to go and set up for the show in Fort McMurray. And I just thought, there's no point me trying to go to sleep now, because... Is this the radio show one? This would have been the same day. Yes. But also, Fort McMurray was back over in Alberta. You know, we have been in Saskatchewan for these first couple of shows, but we're now crossing back over into Alberta... Which was an enormous drive, which ended up being just over sixteen hours, wow. straight through the night. With me, I mean, I'm sure you know from your cushy seat in the fucking minibus. You know, <laughs> it, it really wasn't too much of a hardship, but not too much. Either. Yeah, from my seat on, not even on one of the seats. Remember, not even one of the seats in, you the cab. in the car. I was in
1: the in the middle part. I was on the middle.
0: Yeah, this wasn't even a seat. This was a, a yeah. fucking wooden box yeah. with the thinnest pillow you've seen in your life just as sort of some sort of cushioning. No seatbelt.
1: Yes, I remember that. I do remember that. That tickled me.
0: Yeah, no seatbelt. So uh, I can't... I mean, regardless of, you know, responsible front passenger duties in wrestling... I can't go to sleep anyway, I've got no fucking seatbelt, you know, and I daren't even think about nodding off. For five seconds? Yeah. five seconds? So I'm wide awake, apart from that one time, like I already said, where I very briefly nodded and then sort of scared Otto half to death by giving him a heart attack, saying we were going to crash into a fucking truck coming the other way. I didn't dare go to sleep, because who knows what would have happened.
1: Would you say Danny had the uh
0: <laughs> the better deal? Well In the back with the ring. It's funny you say that because on that journey I briefly for one of the legs I mean we stopped a few times, I remember. Yeah. But for one of the legs between us stopping in between points, I actually swapped places with Danny. And it was I mean it was freezing cold in the front of the cab. But in the back it took being cold to a new level. <laughs> and even more uncomfortable than sitting on that box for 16 hours, you know. And I honestly don't know, unless he sort of went into hibernation, like he did at The Point, I don't know how legitimately how he survived some of those trips.
1: I'm imagining he must have just wrapped himself up with the underlay carpet, Uh closed his eyes and just slept. I'm imagining. Must have done. I mean, that drive in particular. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: You know, it was cold, and it gradually got colder and colder and colder as we moved between Saskatoon and Fort McMurray. And that wasn't even on the ice roads. We hadn't even got there yet. I remember, as we sort of moved through different parts, I remember the land in parts of Saskatchewan being so flat that you could actually see the place that you were going to sort of 30 or 40 minutes before you
1: actually got there. And that was when Robert stuck the van into auto. And just oh, took, really? Took his, yeah, just took his hand off. He said, look at the straight road. Straight road, straight yeah. along. Yeah. I'm saying, no, Robert, just, you know, hold <laughs> up. don't, don't. And he's going, it's safe, trust me. It's safe. Yeah, I remember, and this was
0: specifically when we were driving either through or to a place called Moose Jaw. You know, another one of them places you don't really forget the name of. Yeah, it created this really strange visual illusion. You think you're about to arrive somewhere, but actually, you've still got half an hour to go before you get there. And it, like jet lag, it sort of fucks with your head a little bit. I mean, we eventually arrived in Fort McMurray in the middle of the afternoon sometime, having, you know, set off, I don't know, 10 o'clock the previous night or whatever. We'd already experienced some cold conditions while we'd been there. But when we arrived in Fort McMurray, This was when the temperature was a whopping minus 39. So having had no sleep for well over 24 hours at this point, (laughs) you can imagine how thrilled I was to then be tasked with lugging everybody's bags from the ring van into the hotel in a minus 39 blizzard and then further lugging the bags up to everybody's
1: rooms. Do you remember us doing this? I remember being so hungry that I didn't care. Because I knew that we could, if we get this in as quickly as possible, we could get a little rest. Uh-huh. And I needed some food. I had no energy. Mm-hmm. Diabetic, for God's sake.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I well, need I, some I
1: mean, sustenance. Well, that's another thing,
0: you know. We talk about danger being danger. I mean, you're taking your life in your own hands pretty much in yeah. some of them trips. Yeah. But I do remember when we did have that sort of between an hour and an hour and a half at the hotel, once we'd taken everybody's bags. I pretty much said there's no point in me trying to sleep. If I sleep for an hour, I'm going to wake up more tired than if I go all the way through, sort of thing. So I just used that time to pretty much sort of reflect on everything that we experienced up to that point, and that did me a bit of good. I think you know it helped me process everything because it had been pretty much non-stop, hadn't it? You know,
1: no, oh, it had. You you even in downtime?
0: Yeah, you didn't really get much of a time to think. And that was good for me, actually. That sort of pretty much set me up for, you know, the next couple of days, just having that little bit of personal time. But, I mean, time soon came for us to lug all the fucking bags back out to the ring van again and get the ring and everything set up with, just for a change, the fucking DJ booth, again, braining me ahead of my braining from Robert. (laughs) And it was always on my head. I mean, you said, you know, about getting your fingers squashed and... I can only remember maybe one or two times that I got injured in any other way, other than it landing right on my
1: fucking forehead. It was a heavy old thing. It was cumbersome. You couldn't get proper purchase on it. And although it had sort of smooth edges,
0: there were sharp bits on it as well. And it would always inevitably be them fucking sharp bits that would
1: come cascading out. Remember, that was a homemade... Yeah. And no, there was no <laughs> fine precision edges to it. It was just cut with, like, a buzzsaw.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm still undecided to this day as to whether my stiffest opponent in Canada was actually Robert or whether it was that fucking DJ, DJ booth. DJ Boo, yeah. But the show that night in Fort McMurray, which was at the Father Patrick McCready High School, was the one that was being taped for broadcast on the local TV. Um... And this, you know, would end up being, again, one of my lasting regrets. Never to this day managed to find it anywhere. Never been able to get that footage. It's like the Sunshine Boys stuff. It was out there. Yeah. It had to have been out there somewhere. It exists.
1: So rest (laughs) easy knowing that it
0: exists (laughs) somewhere out there. But I couldn't even tell you what the local TV station was. What it was broadcast on, you know. We never got given those details. And... I mean, it's too late now to try and figure all that out, but, you know.
1: You can't mark out for yourself. (laughs) That's not not acceptable. Yeah.
0: Again, that was a shame because, as I said, that probably ended up being the best match that me and Robert had together. Because everything, you know, whereas we'd had the iffy crowd the previous night, but in the ring it was much better, and the opposite the night before, this show, everything sort of came together, and it was a good, hot crowd, and the match was smooth and flowed.
1: You'd work to a point where... Yeah, it, it just clicked and it worked. Yeah. yeah,
0: The one thing from that show, as well as the match and the TV and everything like that, and I'd expected the TV people to be much more involved. Maybe that was a bit naive, but I'd expected the TV people to be a, a lot more involved than they actually were. I mean, they pretty much just turned up and filmed, didn't they? From what I it remember. It
1: felt like a Britress show with yeah. someone just turning up with a camcorder. Pretty much, yeah. No instruction of, okay, so this is going to be hard cam. Yeah. Go on towards this camera here. This camera's going to be hard cam set up here. Yeah. We're going to have a roving camera around this side. I don't think they came and spoke to us.
0: I don't think so, no. no. And I don't remember any instructions from Steve or Otto either to that effect. The one thing as well that stands out about that show, for me, was it was really, really dark in there. They darkened the actual arena. And it was just, you know, the ring that was spotlighted. And I sort of came a cropper to that. Because somehow, as I came out for the match, I ended up sort of going away from where I was meant to be. And because I've got sunglasses on as well, you know, making my entrance with the sunglasses on, I haven't got a fucking clue where I am. (laughs) And it soon becomes (laughs) apparent that I'm nowhere near where I'm meant to be making my, my entrance for this match. And it turns out I'm actually stood, when I finally get my bearings, I'm stood right in the middle of the back section of one of the like the sections of punters. And I've just got to stand there and sort of wave my flag. And I'm hoping that, like, despite having the sunglasses on, that like my senses kind of kick in and, you know, my eyes adjust. And I can see where the fuck I am and where I'm meant to be. But it quickly becomes apparent that the more and more I wave this flag trying to buy time, I haven't got a fucking yeah. clue where I'm going. The more that's
1: becoming apparent to the hunters, yeah, Yeah, exactly. Yeah.
0: So eventually, I didn't want to have to do this, eventually I had to take the sunglasses off just to see where the fuck I was <laughs> <laughs> so I could get back to where the fuck I was meant to be.
1: A couple of people <laughs> had to o'clock there.
0: It's pretty much unavoidable, <laughs> I think, you know so yeah stood at the back there for ages waving my union flag they must have thought I was a mascot for the show or something like (laughs) but yeah thankfully after that show we were staying at that same hotel again you know we didn't have a long drive and I remember specifically pretty much after the show just zonking out if we went to the bar that night maybe
1: no I don't maybe we had one or two but I don't even think we did I don't think we did uh huh I think Maybe some, some of the guys. other boys yeah. did yeah, but I remember pretty
0: much going and zonking straight out, you know and I think I actually slept all the way through and I woke up to the sound of somebody knocking on the door the following morning shouting that everyone was going to be going downstairs for breakfast in a few minutes and just come and join us when you're ready sort of thing. But I remember feeling a lot more refreshed, you know, after that I decent do night's that sleep. I remember
1: that breakfast, actually. I
0: remember that I remember breakfast, that breakfast yeah. specifically. You know, we come down the stairs and we've already got Rick, you know, OK, Governor, in that legendary attempted British accent. But I remember us sitting down to breakfast, and this is the way my brain works. I remember these little granular details in stupid detail. To the point where I can remember the setup, I can remember what the tables looked like and the setup, and I can remember well, that's really cool. who was sitting where. I remember us going and sitting down at the table with Butch and James, and behind us were Rick and Robert sitting at another table. I
1: know where you're going with this. Yes. I remember this very well.
0: Yeah. We were just sort of eating and chatting, and this absolute mark from the local radio station turned up came in and saw Robert sitting there at the table with Rick and just started fawning absolutely all over him. It's sycophantic, you know, to the point of... I actually wanted Robert to just get up and kick his <laughs> eyes, basically. <laughs> really laying it on thick and then, you know, sort of going, oh, you know, can we do a little interview for the local radio? And despite Robert being, you know, halfway through his breakfast and all of this, he agrees because he's a nice bloke, you know. I'm sure he just wanted to eat his breakfast. Yeah. But they set about doing this interview, however long it was, you know, it lasted, and when they were finished, in an obvious attempt to sort of butter up to Robert even more, I remember him turning to Rick and going in a really, really condescending way, so are you a wrestler as well? Do
1: you remember this? I remember Rick's response, (laughs) look at him, go, I just drive the ring, man.
0: Yeah, I just drive the ring truck. And the guy sort of goes, oh... Alright, and goes to leave, but then Rick pulls him back and starts giving him this long speech about, you know, oh, and the, the thing about driving the ring truck, it's a dangerous job driving the ring truck in these icy conditions, eh? And, you know, it's like, Rick must have kept him talking there. Yeah, the guy's obviously trying to get away. That Rick keeps him talking there, and every time the guy goes to get away, he starts pulling him back in again. And longer goes, than
1: he wanted this. Thing. Yeah,
0: and he said, "Oh yeah," and it's you know it's a really thankless job driving the ring track, hey, and a and you know all of this. Hey, no kidding, eh? Hey. And he must have kept the guy there for longer than he'd been bothering Robert for.
1: What was weird, and it only occurred to me a little while ago, was that. Rick made an effort to disguise who he was out of the Leatherface. Uh-huh. I mean, if you take a look at the size of him, you can put two and two together and say that's Leatherface. James, on the other hand, who is under the bonnet, people are going to know who that is. Uh-huh. There's Butch, yeah. you know who he is. There's another midget. He must be the master midget. No one ever questioned it though. No one ever. Oh, you're the guy, uh, El Stifo Granto, right? The thing that really made me giggle with Rick
0: deliberately wasting this guy's time, this guy had been laying it on really thick about being this huge wrestling fan who'd followed Robert's career all through, you know, and all of this. He and, didn't
1: realise who he was talking and to. And watched, yeah,
0: this is the thing, you know, and watched all this wrestling from around the world. And he's got absolutely no idea that he's standing there talking to... IWA legends. Yeah, one of the most recognisable <laughs> sort of wrestlers in Japan, you know internationally known, works in all these countries around the world. Yeah, that tickled me. I remember us laughing at that as we sat there having our breakfast sort of thing. I remember a bit of banter going back and forth after that time as well, between us and Rick, talking about him being the guy that drives the ring truck and all of this. Just silly little things, you know, that you do to pass the time. I said earlier on that sort of as time went on and we started visiting more and more of the reservations, some of them kind of almost blended into one. And you remember certain instances and certain things happening on that little run, but you don't really remember where it was. But, I mean, the next place that we visited after Fort McMurray is one of them reservations that I specifically remember for a reason. And Fort Mackay, which was the next reservation that we were visiting, was one that stood out. Not so much for the actual reservation itself, which, again, you know, followed that same pattern of being a little bit sort of blended into the others. This was the first time that we travelled on the Winter Roads, and that's why I remember Fort Mackay, the dreaded Winter Roads. I mean, for the whole time we'd been out there, Steve, Otto, and various other people had basically been trying to shit us up over this, hadn't they? They'd been going on and on and on about this stuff, and for anyone listening that isn't familiar with the concept which would have included me before we went, by the way. <laughs> I, I don't know if it has been something that you'd ever heard of before that time.
1: Ice roads? Yeah. I had heard of them, but okay. I didn't realise just how perilous.
0: Yeah, and that was the thing, you know. I mean, these days there are all these sort of programmes like ice road, ice road truckers. truckers yeah. But, I mean, back then, this was something I'd never heard of. And half of me thought it was a rib, and half of me was slightly worried. For people not familiar with the concept, these, during the rest of the year, are basically normal flowing rivers and lakes, which, because of the extreme cold in the Canadian winter, become so cold that they become frozen. And with, you know, various bits of grit and whatever put on them, they are then used as roads to visit these more remote communities, which in the summer And the rest of the year are only accessible via flying to get there. Because, you know, there are no roads linking these places.
1: I just remember hearing a story about WWE superstars, Edge and Christian, in their very early days whilst touring. Along the same route that we were taking. Yeah. About them bursting out in tears. Uh Because they were being ribbed about the ice road breaking underneath them. Uh Uh-huh. And uh, they better say goodbye. Better make their peace with the world because we're going <laughs> under.
0: Yeah. And I remember Otto, especially in the ring van, constantly telling stories about times where the ice has cracked and, you know.
1: They would point out. You couldn't really decipher if they were telling the truth. Uh-huh. Um, but they were pointing out. That's where... Look look at that. That's a car there. Can you see that? That's, that's a car there. That's been underneath the ice for... Probably about uh, two, two months, maybe three months. So, yeah, they would be pointing out poor unfortunates that have gone through the ice, you know, Uh earlier on. Yeah,
0: and this was another situation again where danger really was danger.
1: You would have to be foolish not to be afraid. Uh Uh-huh. Because there was a very real possibility. Uh Uh-huh. You more so because the ring van was... Over a tonne of... <laughs> Twisted steel and sex appeal. Yeah, and you were leading the way. We uh-huh. was in the rest of the minivan behind you with enough space that we would be able to apply the brakes yeah. and watch you as you submerge. I like that you would have watched. There would have been little we could have done. We could have got out and Laugh. gave you a round of applause or <laughs> I don't know.
0: Yeah, at least give me that Titanic going down <laughs> moment. You know, the band playing. <laughs> Where was these fucking Native American instruments when we needed them? I genuinely thought that they were winding us up when they first told us about these winter roads. Thinking, you know, how on earth can you drive over a river? On that day, though, when we got to the end of the black tarmac road. Yeah. And in front of us, everything as far as I could see was just white, which we then started driving on. I finally sort of twigged the right. This isn't actually a wind up, is it? This is actually a real thing. They did do their best to try and freak us out beforehand. Mm-hmm. And that trip to Fort Mackay was only a pretty short one across the winter road. It was probably about 45 miles all in all. But it might as well have been as long as the journey you know, to Fort McMurray from Saskatoon. I mean, during our time out there, we ended up driving over frozen rivers and lakes for hundreds and hundreds of miles in the end, all in all. And to say I was absolutely shitting myself the entire time might just be the biggest understatement in the history of everything. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, of course, you know, we've got them constantly saying this is a particularly dangerous one today or this is, you know, a particularly... Listen out for the cracks. Listen out for the cracks. Yeah. And even though, you know, this was a really dangerous situation and they'd done their best to shit me up, which had worked, in the front of that van... Otto and Winston were absolutely cool as cucumbers. But if they were cool as cucumbers, they had absolutely nothing on Danny in the back of the van with a ring. <sighs> Whee! Yeah. Whee! We're going along this bumpy winter road as well. And that's the thing, you know, it wasn't a smooth ride. It was a bumpy ride. All of a sudden, like, we hear shouting coming from the back. And as we listened, we could hear Danny going... And when I looked through that little hatch in the middle of the compartment, and there was Danny standing up on one of the beams running diagonally from one end of the van to the other,
1: fucking surfing. He probably had reached that stage where death would have been a (laughs) merciful release for him. He was not worried about it at all. He did find it a fun experience. I don't know whether that was just ignorance, because if (laughs) you... He was in could, a box. He was in that ring van was a box. Could have been delirium. Delirium, yes. I never thought about it that yes, way. Yes, you know. yes. Yeah. He's
0: had, you know, a Mars bar to eat two days previously. And like, he's, he's <laughs> just sort of... <laughs> he's entered some kind of hibernation. He's emerged out of a diabetic coma of some sort. He,
1: you know, it's He like, really feels that he was on a fairground ride. Yeah.
0: <laughs> he really thought he was. <laughs> but I mean, you know, I couldn't believe it. You know, we're going along these bumpy winter roads... There's Danny fucking perched on this beam surfing. And I think that was actually the closest I came to cracking and shouting, what the fuck is wrong with you people? <laughs> but I mean, you know, somehow we made it in one piece. Somehow. Well, I say that, actually. I mean, every now and again, we'd hear Danny sort of, we'd go over a bump and Danny would sort of fall off and thud on the floor. You know, we'd hear, ow! Ow! But within a couple of minutes, he'd get straight back up, be straight on the beam, you know,
1: surfing again, Whee, wahey, wahey! That ring was tightly packed away into the van, but it still shifted, and it was dangerous. I know it shifted. It, It shifted, it moved.
0: I know it shifted from that brief stint I spent in there, you know, on the way to Fort McMurray that time. That would, well, that would have killed him. Well... After the one time we went over this especially big bump, we heard this big... in the back of the van. And Danny just went quiet. (laughs) (laughs) We didn't even hear ow. We just heard... and everything just went quiet. And, you know, I called back there and I asked, you know, are you okay? (laughs) Nothing. (laughs) So I kept asking and kept asking and kept asking. Nothing. And... Given the situation we're in, we're on this winter road being shitted up enough as it is. It's not like we can exactly stop and, you know, get out and check on him. No. I mean, short of asking, are you okay?" There wasn't really (laughs) a lot we could do. It turns out when we actually got to Fort Mackay, he'd, like, banged his head. He'd fucking knocked himself out. Oh, Danny. And you imagine, like, if... I don't know who would have stopped the van, for example, but... Imagine somebody like comes along there wants to stop and check the van. You know, they open up the back of the van
1: and there's this fucking corpse in there, like frozen solid like It isn't out of the realms of possibility that those head injuries that he accrued for the CAN tour could have been the reason why he went a little bit yeah. crazy and late. Who knows? Who knows? I mean it's definitely a distinct possibility. He'd be able to use it as defence. Mm-hmm. <laughs> in a court he could use it as defence I yeah. don't know whether
0: it would be plausible I now call my first witness You know
2: <laughs>
0: For the defence Steve Wild I'm sure Steve would have been thrilled at that You know, I'm sure he would have given them a shining testimonial Oh wow
1: Well If he's going to be his defence attorney Then that's Danny off. <laughs> what was your
0: experience like Of travelling them winter roads In the minibus Compared to, I mean, I had my own unique experience in the van. What was your experience like in the minibus
1: doing them trips? Oh, well, I got regaled with stories of times where they uh, national planed along sidewards where the truckers spun out.
0: Yeah, I remember hearing about these as well. And
1: um, stories of half of the ring van sinking down into the ice. Uh-huh. And if it wasn't for just a weight in the back, it would have took a header all yeah. the way in. All of the guys had stories. They're all Canadian veterans. Yeah. They all have been travelling along the ice roads many times. So Uh they were happy to tell me. I wasn't freaking out too badly. So I wasn't allowing him to wind me up. That's where they told me the story about Edge and Christian and isn't it strange? We can look back at it from here and say, Yeah, well, that type of shit did happen and you know, if you have ever watched Ice Road Truckers those stories you see on air, the stories we were being told about. Uh-huh. You know, it does happen. Yeah. And it's a very real danger. And again, you know, we talked a
0: little bit earlier. That very real danger, you know, you're in this van going along the middle of nowhere. If You're pretty much fucked if something does happen.
1: You're not getting a because recovery this truck. This is the thing,
0: yeah. get you. <laughs> <laughs> you know, how do you get out of that situation? And also, you're going along and you look out the window and you randomly just see a fucking bear. Yeah. Like... Yeah, over the other side of not
1: well the road, that's, the winter that's road. Crazy. Although we did stop and have a photo opportunity with you as the cameraman. Yes, I thought you were going to say with the fucking bear.
0: <laughs> I was going to say I'm kind of glad you know, I missed likely. that one.
1: Yeah, and that worried me a little bit. That photograph, you can see me in it smiling, but it was a nervous smile that I was given because. You know, when I put that photo
0: up on Twitter, when I put that up, I sort of put underneath, like uh, I said, looking back, I really wish I'd hobbled onto one of the winter roads, you know, for one of these pictures.
1: Now, if you remember rightly, that was on a slope. Mm. So if you would have tried to hobble down, you would have slid down. Probably, yeah. And getting back up again, I don't know, you probably wouldn't need to be carried (laughs) Yeah, so that's a difficult one because I don't think you would have been able to. I don't think, because it was a slope, it was a steep slope down. Uh I don't know whose idea it was for us to stand all the way down in that. That's what was freaking me out. I'm thinking, are we safer here or are we in more danger? Yeah, that was another thing you
0: never quite knew, did you? No. Because you weren't familiar with the terrain, you weren't familiar with the surroundings you were relying on other people to not only give you that information, but you also had to trust them that they knew what they were doing sort of thing. I remember bits of that show. I remember the show itself wasn't exactly especially memorable. It was pretty much just a case of, we've got this nice little routine now. And I remember us just sort of motoring through that. Apart from the Winter Roads, I don't think anything sort of specifically memorable happened on that reservation. And the next couple were very much like that as well, which is why it becomes a little bit of a blur. Blurred. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm almost annoyed at myself that I haven't got these details because I'm quite... Especially for you. ...OCD like yeah, that. You know, I, I like to know these things. Definitely. And it's sort of a blur between doing that show in Fort Mackay. I know we had at least two more around that general kind of area before we did the longer trip, the much longer trip, up to Fort Chippewan. Oh. I don't know if you did longer ones later on, but that, I remember being the really long trip uh, the on, the, on the winter one on the winter was the route. longest
1: one that we done.
0: Yeah, I remember pretty much as soon as we got to Fort one I felt like there was a really, really good vibe about the place. I mean, that would be confirmed later on. You know, the people were nice. They were very friendly I remember some of the locals sort of coming down to chat to us as we were starting to unload and get everything set up. And I remember these two girls specifically, Jennifer and Desiree were their names. Wow, you remember their names? Really taking a shine to me in particular. And that earned loads of piss taking -taking from the other boys sort of thing. But I was really happy to give them my time because they were such nice people. They turned up with other family members, you know, and we were all sort of stood chatting and they were such lovely people, you know, I was really happy to give them
1: that time. Not that we had too many encounters with people that were rude, but they just stood out as being good people. They really did
0: stand out, but unfortunately, you'd fucking jinxed us from the start. It was the crow, it wasn't me. Yeah. <laughs> you had started banging on about having
1: seen a particularly evil looking crow. No. A... No, 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 no. It was worse than that. It was worse than that. The crow landed on the bonnet of the van. Uh huh. Oh my goodness. This is now flashed back to me. The crow had landed on the bonnet of the minivan, turned, looked directly into the windshield. Screamed, flapped his wings, and then just flew over the van. And Rick turned to me and said, Did you just see that? And I was stone faced, staring directly at the outside of the uh, windshield. I thought, Right, that's it. And even Steve said, Oh, we should just turn around now. He said, That's a bad omen. And Rick agreed. And I said, duh, though you don't need to convince me, that's a bad sign. <laughs> And from there, things did go. Yeah. Wrong.
0: I mean, I ended up getting injured while we were bringing the ring in. Slipping on... You know, it was one of them really sort of shiny, very buffed gym
1: floors, wasn't it? If you remember, the venue, it wasn't a straight line from the entrance of the venue to the ring van. uh uh-huh. There was a turn that we needed to make. That's where you went. But I actually went over
0: more than once. But the first time I was okay, I just remember us traipsing the snow in directly from outside. Yep. Because, you know, there was no matting or anything. Nope. And me then going... But one thing I did remember recently, actually, I'd never even put two and two together at the time. The previous year, period of about a year, I would already fucked my ankle twice in different incidents. One time when I was on with Alex at a show in Worcester. It was a low ceiling and it was a low set ring as well. And you know from having done that spot with Alex where he does the spinning wheel kick. Yes. Um, with you sitting on the corner and you sort of cartwheel in a sense. To, you, do. You, you know You sacrifice yourself by throwing yourself to the side. Yeah. That was the first spot of that match. And I came down in such a way that I landed
1: right on my ankle. Fucked my ankle. so Fantastic. If you're going to hurt yourself like that, you want to do it in the first few minutes because you know for the next 10, Alex has got so many spots planned out for you uh-huh. that he'll still want to do, even if you've messed your ankle up. Yeah. yeah, and because of the low
0: setting on the ring, I didn't have as much time to adjust going over. Not that I probably could have done anyway because I just threw myself and it was all a bit of a blur. Yeah, that's the way I used to do it. But not only that, I mean, that probably sort of set the grounding. But about six months after that, I fucked my uncle again, this time going out of a rumble in Wales for Dave Reese. You encountered... Was it a hospital or is it medical It was centre? the two girls, Jennifer and yes. Desiree, along with Jennifer's brother, who was a little bit older, because I think they were 14 at the time. They were both 14. And he was, I think, maybe 17 but he could drive. You know, it was a bit different, wasn't it?
1: See, the law would... about driving on those places...
0: Yeah, it was a bit shaky, wasn't yeah. it? You know, it was. if you're a bit responsible, then, OK, you can drive. They took me off in his car to the medical station, and he went off to do whatever he was doing. And the two girls waited there with me until the nurse could come out and see me. And that was brilliant, actually. It was a shitty situation, but... Spending that time there with them, and them sort of firing all sorts of questions at me. Not just about wrestling, but about life generally. They had such, you know, sort of curious minds about not just this stuff that we were doing, but like the world in general. Yeah, They were so keen to get this outsider's perspective.
1: Their whole life experience was inside of that. Well, this is the thing,
0: yeah. And it was probably very rare that they actually saw... Yeah. Any kind of outside influence? Definitely would be. Probably similar to, you know, you've told me before about when you've taught in China yeah. and because of the environment, yes. being very restrictive in terms of their experience of you the world. You are
1: the window you know. to the world for them. Yeah. You know, so they will try and quiz you on what life is like. I think they really enjoyed
0: sort of making a fuss of me, you know, which was nice. And they were just such genuinely lovely people. The nurse turned up, took a look at it. Could see it was swollen. Said that, you know, I'd obviously stretched or strained or whatever it might be. Yeah, the ankle ligaments. Put some strapping on it, gave me some painkillers, gave me a set of crutches to walk with. We spoke a little bit earlier. Yeah, I know you maybe had your doubts at the time over whether the injury was sort of legit. Reason being that by that time I had started to get quite homesick. At the same time though, by the time that we were in Fort yeah. Chipper One, I was actually feeling good about everything again. So the homesickness that I had been yeah. experiencing, although I was still homesick, I was at a point where I could quite happily carry on.
1: The ankle was heavily swollen. Yeah. You could have stayed on. See, this is one of the things that I was thinking just recently. Yeah. You know, when I've been
0: going back over all of this stuff was, you know... At that point where Steve came to me and said, do you think you're going to be able to work again anytime soon? I sort of, I've started thinking, well, maybe could I have done something to
1: carry on? The thing there is, if you would have stayed on, in what role would you have been capable of? Otherwise, and I think you know this is true, you would have just been excess baggage to carry along. Yeah. Your accommodation would have had to have been paid for. Your partner group, so your food would have had to been paid for, and you wouldn't have been contributing towards the show in general. Yeah, I don't know if the offer was put to you if you wanted to stay on or not. It wasn't so much an offer of whether I wanted to stay
0: on. It was Steve coming to me because I mean, after I got hurt, I came round to another two or three shows after Fort Chip. And that was when, you know, we mentioned earlier I took the photos. and That's
1: right.
0: Yes, yes, yes. And I think at the end of those shows, that's when Steve came to me and said, do you think you're going to be able to work again sometime soon? How aware were you, how bad your ankle was at that time? I was aware it was bad. You know, make no bones about it. I was really struggling to get about. At the same time, it's like I say... Was there the possibility I could have done something with it and carried on working? Again, you know, ifs and buts. Who knows? I mean, looking back now, I probably do regret not at least giving that option a try, if it was an option.
1: I'm still trying to take a think of what other role... I mean, you couldn't have done refereeing, that's for sure. Uh That involves just as much movement as being a wrestler. Yeah. DJ Booth ringing out to, you know what? oh god 20 years and this is only coming across my mind now that should have been the offer given to you because that would have freed up otto yeah to just step in in your place so it's just an exchange straight yeah. exchange and to be honest i probably would have done that the offer wasn't put to you. no would have put a unique spin on the show having a british voice yeah that would have been quite strange it, actually it would have been but i guess if the offer wasn't put to you As you say, you can't work off ifs and buts. I've got to say, actually,
0: before we sort of move on from that completely, that the love and sort of care that them people in that reservation showed me as a complete outsider, you know, let's not forget that, as a complete outsider, they showed me so much love that day, looking after me, making sure I was okay. And I don't know if you remember, but I turned back up at the show about the time the show was starting. I do remember Jennifer's brother again had brought me back down in the car and they'd come down with us, you know, to sit in the crowd. I ended up sitting wherever it was, somewhere. And I remember not just Jennifer and Desiro, the two girls, coming over and constantly saying, you know, do you need anything? You know, can we help you with anything? Are you okay? Can we get this for you? Can we get that for you? But lots of other people from the reservation who I hadn't even met. You know, but they'd seen me sort of turn back up on these crutches, and they'd obviously heard the story of what had happened. I had loads of people keep coming up to me, you know, saying, "Are you okay? You know, do you need anything?" And I thought that was
1: so nice. I was going to stay with you. That type of um, and it did interaction. It has kindness. Remember, really horrible incidents that happened to us, and really good incidents as well. And sometimes in the business that we were in, those good incidents
0: Mm. weren't quite as many as the bad incidents so they tend to stick out in the mind even more. So I remember watching the show and I remember as I say loads of people coming up to me to check I was okay and at the end when you know everything was getting packed away and somebody else was having the DJ booth dropped on their head for a change I remember you know the two girls sort of coming up and giving me hugs and you know saying thank you for being our wrestler friend and all this and that Steve, who was standing nearby, even Steve went, ah, and it has stuck with me, and I always wanted to go back there, even if it wasn't to wrestle, I just wanted to go back to that place, and I'm still determined one day that will happen. I don't think if it would have been that night in Fort chipperwon That was one of the nights that you worked with Cuban, that I saw you work with Cuban, but I don't think that was the night where they ribbed you. We've
1: got to tell that story. That was the last night of me working with Cuban. I can't remember the venue, but they did it for that purpose. Right. And I think Cuban insisted on that happening. Because he would always beat me with the Cuban stunner.
0: Yeah, that's right.
1: Which, I, you know, you've seen some ridiculous cell jobs. Yeah. <laughs> My cells got better and better every night I was taking that. The sleeper finish... were you there when they were planning it I don't remember ever hearing them planning it because you knew it was a rib you knew what was happening yeah I stuck Cuban in a sleeper raise the arm up drop it once raise the arm up drop it twice and the idea was on a third just before the arm drops it holds up yeah to show that the person is still conscious this time Cuban just let the arm drop for the third time. <laughs> and Otto, the referee, rang the bell. I was the winner. Then they tried to rib me over properly putting Cuban to sleep <laughs> in a legitimate sleeper hold. Which I thought, I wasn't applying enough pressure to put someone to sleep. Uh, how can this be true? And I don't know, they worked some sort of gimmick where they roused him. Some hocus pocus. Slapped him on his trapeziums and he jumped up and chased Otto out the ring and chased me out the ring. <laughs> but that was nice, that was nice, you know, putting me over on the last night that we worked together. It means I went over on a legend like Cuban <laughs> Assassin. What a guy. What a guy.
0: I remember saying goodbye to everyone and I was genuinely gutted to be leaving. I didn't want to see you go. I did not want to see you go. Well, this was the other thing. I was essentially sort of abandoning you out there as
1: well. We'd gone out there as a team sort of thing. I was asked, so you're staying or are you going back? I said, oh, I'm staying. Staying for the long haul. And the tour was extended. I was told a little fiddle how to just emotionally play the airline to get me a free (laughs) ticket back. It worked. It worked. What was it, like a
0: bereavement fair or something? Or <laughs> just, something along them lines?
1: No, it was just, you know, play ignorance. I didn't right. realise that I should have flowed back at that time. I was told that I can just, you know, turn up with this ticket and just change the exit date. So I just want to go home. I just want to go home. <laughs> Who told me that? And that was Rick saying that. Just keep repeating, I just want to go home. And in the end, just to shut you up, they'll give you a ticket. And it worked. <laughs>
0: Yeah, when I left Fort McMurray to head back down to Calgary, I had a bit of a wait before my Greyhound bus. So I spent, I think, about four hours at the all-you-can-eat buffet in that hotel in Fort McMurray, and I either had a newspaper or a book or something, and I just sat there randomly, very occasionally, going up and getting stuff from the buffet, pretty much filling myself up with rice and like, whatever it was, I think there were only about three things on the entire buffet I could actually eat as a vegetarian. (laughs) And some of them I wasn't even sure about. So I pretty much loaded myself up on rice and very little else ahead of, you know, this long Long journey. journey,
1: Was it one flight over as well, back as well? Yeah. You know, with no stopovers?
0: Yeah. The bus journey down to Calgary from Fort McMurray took in all sorts of places. It was like a full sort of 12-hour spectacular through wherever, like Edmonton, Red Deer... Wherever else it went through. And I got back to the bus station in Calgary and Steve's wife, Wendy, came and met me. And because I had a gap of probably about maybe seven or eight hours between getting into Calgary and the flight leaving, I just stayed at their house, which I was very grateful for. I was grateful for a lot of things that Steve and Wendy did. You know, I was grateful that Steve carried on paying for the accommodation after yes. I got hurt. Grateful for Wendy taking me in, which she certainly didn't have to, you know. No, no, that and, was great, yeah. And as I said, I was really gutted to leave. And that really sort of sank in when I was saying goodbye to everyone. And I was getting various sort of pep talks and bits of advice from people as they would come through. I remember Robert giving me some advice. I remember Rick, you know, having a longer chat with Rick. Because, you know, he was one of them guys that you really sort of bonded with. Definitely. Yeah, I was really, really gutted. But yeah, got the flight. I flew out from Gatwick and I flew back to Heathrow. And this was with Air Canada on the way back, which was a much, much better flight. Not just in terms of general comfort or anything like that, but a steward crew that actually came round regularly with stuff. There was even a vegetarian meal, which, you know... I didn't have the luxury of on the way out. All I had was these little bags of pretzels. And I remember, I was still bricking it a bit on the way back, but I do remember my one abiding thought on the way back was, please let me survive this flight because I want to tell people all about this incredible adventure I've just been on. And although I'm gutted to be coming home early, what I've experienced over the last month will stay stay with me. And it has. Yeah, and of course, when I finally got back to Birmingham, you know, I, I'm, I'm flying into Heathrow, I've still got to get back to Birmingham. I'm still on crutches as well. And I remember getting ferried through the airport on one of these, you know, them luggage carts yeah, type yeah, things. Yeah. I don't know what they're called, but...
1: I don't know what they're but I know what you mean.
0: Yeah, getting ferried along from the plane, you know, on one of them, like all the way through to where I could get... trying to think how I did it. I must have got the tube back into probably Euston or wherever. And ended up getting a train from there. So, yeah, that was an experience. And when I got back, when I finally got back to Birmingham, I slept for about two days. I turned into Danny. Just caught up with you, yeah? Basically, yeah. Because, I mean, I hadn't factored in at the time. That whole time of getting up in the morning on the day I left Fort McMurray, 12-hour bus journey down to Calgary, then, you know, however many hours, then an eight-and-a-half-hour flight back. And I hadn't slept in this time at all. It was like that trip to Fort McMurray catching up with us again. I slept, honestly, for about two days. I mean, that's obviously where I left the tour. But, of course, you carried on. And, as you say, even more dates got added.
1: Yes. Before you finally came home. We had sporadic cancellations in that time frame as well. Uh-huh. But more dates were added. Um, Phil Reform was introduced yeah. into the group. I know, he's a hero of yours. He was a hero of mine. Uh-huh. Steve introduced me the day that he joined the group, and he saw me staring at Phil Radford with stars in my eyes, and he said to me, "Calm down, Justin. It's okay. <laughs> calm down. <laughs> calm down. He's a wrestler just like you." Mm-hmm. And Steve said, "This is Justin Mitchell from the UK. He's a very good hold for hold wrestler." And I thought he put me over the Phil O'Conn. Okay, mm-hmm. I kind of wish that he didn't do that. Because, um, and again, I've said this to someone very recently, we shouldn't put other people over too big. Because mm-hmm. if that person doesn't live up to... Yeah, that's the thing, isn't it? It puts pressure on yeah,
0: you to live up
1: to that. Yeah. But I ended up uh, having a really nice run of matches with him. I potatoed him a couple of times. He reminded me that, you know, he goes, OK, uh, once is a mistake. <laughs> <laughs> said, if you keep on though, Justin, I'm going to have to give you a receipt. It was so funny. Uh So funny. He didn't mind me going over every single night. He looked at me and said, it's pro wrestling. And that stuck with me. Yeah. Because other people said that to me. When I was putting other people over and they looked at me and said, really, you let me go over? And I would say to them, it's pro wrestling. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: It means nothing. But we've both been in situations where we've seen people throw... Temper tantrums. Oh God! If yeah. you're expected to lose a match, uh huh. Phil did a few things. Up. I remember him wearing a jester's hat, finding a jester's hat backstage, <laughs> and he knew he was in a town, and I can't remember the name of the town. He knew it was in a town that he was well known in. So I thought he'd up, play this one straight down the middle, really serious. And he took the jester's hat, put it on, and said, "Shall I wear it out?" I said, "You won't wear it out to the ring." "I bet you I will," I said. "I bet you will." And sure enough, he come out dancing like a jester, singing a song <laughs> to the ring. And uh, he ended up wearing it in the match for the first couple of minutes of the match before I just pulled it off of his head and just threw it outside of the ring. Not having my hero embarrass himself like this. But I did learn a lot from Phil because he would sit down and chat with me about where I wanted to go in wrestling. You know, what I'd probably need to do, which would be stop being such a nice guy. Uh-huh. I got that advice from Steve Wilde as well, but it's difficult. Yeah. I'm stubborn in a way that I wouldn't sacrifice that side of me. Yeah. And that's probably
0: quite a good stubbornness to have.
1: Yeah. It's difficult. Good guys do exist in wrestling, but they're few and far between. So was that, you
0: know, pretty much what stopped you from going back out there? The thought of that? Cause I mean, it seemed to me like you, you obviously gave a better impression of yourself on that tour than I did.
1: Well, time. Yeah. Time, that's all. I spent longer out there, uh-huh. so I had more chance to contribute. But at the same time, there were opportunities that arose out of that tour. Rick gave me the contact details of the promoter, the booker, sorry, of Korea Pro Wrestling. Yes, uh, Jason the Terrible. that's right, yeah. He said, I think you'll do really well out there. The booker's a good friend of mine. I'll put you over to him. Uh, we'll get you some work out there. I was worried because I'd seen some of his stuff in career pro wrestling and it was <laughs> blood and guts. Yeah. He said, yeah, you're being booked to wrestle how you wrestle.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You're not being booked to go out there and do death matches. That's, yeah. They said that's what they booked me for. So you'd be booked to go out there and just wrestle. So I had that opportunity. Steve and Otto... Said you're welcome back any time you want to come back. Mm-hmm. I never took those opportunities up, and do I regret it? I do, mm-hmm. because I backed about in promotions like the FWA. Some would say that was the rise of the FWA around that time. I would say it was the opposite. I would say that's when the FWA went to shit. I wasn't enjoying myself. Mm-hmm. That's why I took my first extended break. yeah I remember
0: actually that being the following year
1: mm. yeah it took me a while to get around to do it but I wasn't feeling resting Uh-huh It's a sad thing because I never fully recovered my passion for wrestling after that it was just slowly ebbing away from me. Well I know that similar to what you were saying it was actually
0: Rick. ...that I was talking to and got in touch with me and said... ...they wanted me to go out to IWA Japan, funnily enough... ...and be a manager out there for him and you know whoever it might be sort of thing. Because I remember them being impressed with my talking. I think that was a sort of takeaway from the tour. The impression that people had of us was like... ...they were impressed with your wrestling and my talking. I don't know how that would have worked... You know, me going and being a manager in a non English speaking country, yeah, you know, because I can talk in English, it just seemed like a really strange deal. And the return of that was they wanted me to get them bookings over here, which at the time I wasn't able to
1: get enough of. You know them, what? I tried. Know. I tried. And I bloody did try. I uh-huh. tried so hard. And at the time also, there probably
0: weren't enough shows. Not
1: really. Not really. At the time, wrestling was in a pretty shit position back then. It wasn't showing much signs of growth. The scene just wasn't going anywhere. I should have taken my opportunities and stepped forth to Korea. But it never happened.
0: Yeah, it's funny. I remember all of them places being mentioned at the time. You know, there were shows in Korea, there were shows in Guam. Yes. I think it was the same people, wasn't it? Yes, it
1: was, yeah. Puerto Rico as well. Yeah, that would have been good.
0: So, I mean, you know, after I came back and you carried on, can you think of any other places that you went to that were particularly memorable or any incidents that were especially memorable, notwithstanding um, your drunken
1: encounter with the Mounties? Oh, no, we can't mention that. That's, oh, <laughs> that's damaging to my reputation. We not <laughs> mention that. Again, Mansfield tried to drop me in it with that story. I regret telling him. Now he's using that as ammunition. There was a mining town. That was very different. That was a hard town to work. Good crowd, and they loved their wrestling. But you had to really, really go out your way yeah. to perform with them. If you were slacking, you know they'd let you know about it. By then, I was working with Phillefon regularly. We was in a good pattern. We knew what we were doing. It was just a wash, rinse and repeat uh-huh. system again. They were good matches. Yeah. What happened to your Can-Am hat? I wish I knew. I, I wish I knew what happened to my Can-Am hat. You had the Can-Am t-shirt as well. Yeah, I had a hat and a t-shirt. You had the
0: cap. Yeah, I had the cap. And I'm pretty sure I got nicked backstage at a show somewhere. Whoa. But I can't remember the specifics now. That was our only keepsake. Yeah, that was the thing, you know, and that's one of my regrets. As well as coming home early and, you know, missing out on that stuff that like you've just said. One of my main regrets was not having enough
1: mementos of that trip. You see, memories are all we have. Unfortunately for you, you have an excellent memory. I remember certain moments Mm -hmm. and I remember the feelings that they evoked inside of me. That's when I can look back and smile at those times. I think I've told you in the past before, if I could go back in time and do it all again, I wouldn't. Mm -hmm. And if I could only make one exception through my time in wrestling, that would be that time in Canada. I would do that time in Canada again. Uh It stands out. Even to this day, it stands out as being one of the highlights Post coming back from there, a
0: few little things. I mean, we've already mentioned the potential other opportunities opening up as a result of being out there. I remember Danny falling for some Nigerian money scam, or <laughs> some sort of that, some sort of lottery scam or inheritance scam, and jetting off round the world. And he actually came over here with the intention of seeing us. He got as far as Heathrow.
1: Oh, and they turned him around. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Yes! He flew all the way over here. Yeah. They wouldn't let him in, and he had to fly straight back again. And I think after that, you know, they started investigating all of this stuff that he'd been getting up to. I remember Steve. This would have been going back maybe seven or eight years. We got a random message saying that Steve was coming over to the UK. Do you remember this? I do remember And it was just unfortunate that we weren't able to go and meet up with him. Oh,
1: I do remember.
0: Because it was in the middle of the week, it was on a Tuesday or something, that he would be there, and
1: he'd be available. And it was up in Sunderland or somewhere. That's what it was. It was distant. Yeah. And I remember Robert being in the same predicament that he was coming over for some film. When they were doing the film for um, the TV series Merlin. Yes. But wherever that was, that was... A little too far of a jaunt for me to uh-huh. head up to. Now, you know, I'm confident I'll bump into one of them sooner or later. Yeah, it was a pretty
0: unique crew, I'd have said. And I remember, funnily enough, that same picture that was taken on the Winter Roads that day. Sharing that with someone a few years ago now. And then sort of posting it up on various places, saying this is such an eclectic mix of people that, (laughs) you know, I I thought I should post this just because you've got this person and this person. They're from completely different backgrounds. And it was such a
1: very varied crew. It was, but we blended well together. Yeah, It wasn't out of just necessity, we just got along. Yeah.
0: And to the possible sound of a couple of crows... Uh Uh-oh... I think that might be a good time to finish.
1: Oh, what was that? (laughs) That was good timing, that was. Yeah. So
0: thank you so, so much for coming to do this one because this is the one that I've been wanting to do ever since I started the podcast.
1: It's been nice to chat about it. You certainly reminded me of a lot of things that I'd forgotten. If anybody out there is considering taking a chance, taking a gamble, and heading out overseas, do it. Yeah. It's always good to
0: broaden your horizons, you know, and taking yourself out of that comfort zone. I was a bit of a stickler at times, I think, for staying in my comfort zone a little bit too much. But this trip in particular really took me way, way out of my comfort zone. And despite it being tiring, despite it being hard work, you know, despite it being all of these things, It was an absolutely incredible experience overall.
1: Thank you, Ken Hampton.
0: Yeah, thank you to everybody we encountered on that trip. It was just an absolute blast from start to finish. So thank you very, very much.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me, Carl.
0: Yeah, it's been brilliant. So that was my interview with my good friend, Justin Richards who I'm sure you'll agree was another absolutely fantastic guest. And I'll look forward to Justin no doubt joining me again at various points in the future on this podcast. Well, that may have been the end of the interview with Justin Richards. But since we sat down and recorded the material for these podcasts, a couple of things have happened. Firstly, after an absence of several years, Can-Am Wrestling has started up again, again based in Calgary. And I'm pleased to say that Justin and myself will be talking to Otto and Steve from Can-Am Wrestling on this podcast sometime soon, which will no doubt be absolutely tremendous. So do keep a look out for that coming up in the near future. Technology really can be a wonderful thing at times in keeping people halfway across the world from each other connected. And that very much leads on to the second thing that's happened since I recorded the podcasts with Justin. I mentioned more than once during the podcast that I never forgot the genuine care and kindness shown to me by the people in Fort Chippewan the day I got injured. And whilst doing some research and refreshing my memory in preparation for the interview with Justin, I came across a Facebook group about Fort Chipper1, which I requested to join. I didn't hear anything back at that time, so I figured the group wasn't monitored very often. A few months later though, I got a notification to say that my request to join the group had been approved. So I went on and posted my story making it clear how much I appreciated the way that their people had looked after me that day. Within 10 minutes of putting the post up, someone had tagged one of the girls in the comments, and I was then able to connect with them again over thousands of miles after more than 20 years had gone by. And as much as social media has its downsides at times, this was one example of it being able to do some really good things too. I also mentioned during the podcast that there was various music that reminded me of our trip. Whether it be music connected to the shows, or simply because it was in the charts, so reminds me of that period of time. So, to finish off, here is a montage of some of that music. just about it again for this time thank you all very very much for listening and thank you again to my fantastic guest Justin Richards and as I mentioned before I'm pleased to say that Justin will be joining me again in the near future as the two of us chat with Stephen Otto of Can-Am Wrestling in what should be another tremendous interview all that plus much much more to come in the near future so, do keep a lookout on our social media pages for details of when new episodes will be available. Episode 25 will feature another new guest, as longtime CSF referee Mark Rowell joins me in another episode you really won't want to miss. Episode 25 will also see the return of all of our regular features, so, again, do keep a lookout for details of when that episode and others will be out. Until that time, if you enjoy this show, please do continue to like, share, retweet our posts, and recommend us to others. Please do also get in touch, and let us know what you think. We do love to hear your feedback. So until next time, this is Carl Stewart, signing off, and saying goodbye, and thank you.